All right, men, so you still have the outline, and I'm just picking up where I left off in that outline. I'll begin by reading the text and then just briefly, briefly review what we saw and then jump in. John 21, verses 15 to 17. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So this morning we saw um, Jesus' conversation with Peter there, Roman numeral two, a brief survey of that conversation, three questions, three answers. Second, some observations regarding that conversation. First, Jesus was recalling Peter's denial. Second, Jesus was humbling Peter and restoring Peter at the same time, humbling him, restoring him, and then he was commissioning him. Or you could look at the commissioning like it is in that outline as part of his restoring him. But then we began some lessons from the conversation between Jesus and Peter. The first lesson is Christ, love to Christ, I should say, is everything. So it's the greatest thing. It goes along with the first commandment. Um, it's the one thing needful, we could put it that way, like Mary sitting at Jesus' feet. But now let's just jump into the, the second point of application. And for the second message, just... Let's remember, brethren, these are things that we as pastors need both to assimilate the lessons I'm giving here and appropriate to ourselves for our own walk and our own sanctification, thinking of God's dealings with us as Christ dealt with Peter, but also things in which we need to imitate Jesus in our ministries to others. So keep both those elements in mind. The second thing then is, as a practical lesson, sometimes we need to be worked over when we have sinned. And again, I'm saying both ourselves as pastors, and then we should remember that with Christ's people as well. And we should learn a lesson for ourselves, lest we be too touchy and afraid to do work with the sheep like Christ did with his sheep, Peter. I say that because maybe it's not true with everybody here, but I think as a general rule, it's true. If we had our way, when we sin, we would always get treated by people with kid gloves, as they say. In fact, we'd probably be happy many times. I mean, we don't mind acknowledging our sins, and it's okay if somebody noticed it and they realize it. But beyond that, we'd be happy if it was just ignored from that point on. That's not how Jesus acted with Peter. 
He dealt with Peter in what we could call a painful way. And, and he did it purposely. As the Bible says, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and he scourges every son whom he receives. Those words, no doubt, were chosen by the writer on purpose. So that's what Jesus does here. He works Peter over, if you will. I use the analogy of the Syrophoenician woman, that Jesus dealt with her in a way that probably wasn't all that pleasant to her, especially when she's just thinking about her daughter who's inhabited by a demon and how she just wants to see an end to her daughter's suffering. So he is dealing with her, though, putting her off, you know, saying that you're not really someone I was sent to minister to. You're not really, you know, you're like, you're like a dog, a dog in the house. But of course, that one, he's doing it. Why? So that woman will come up with an answer like, but even the little dogs get the crumbs from the table. And he's doing that on purpose, even though he knows it's not pleasant to her to receive his ministry like that. So if Jesus worked in that difficult way in this woman, just to bring out faith that he knew was there, how much more should we expect him to deal closely with us and even in what we could call a painful way when we have sinned against him? And sometimes what God does, even after we've faced it, confessed it, and so on, he puts our sin right in our face again. He does it through circumstances, experiences in our life that are reminders of our sin. Who brought us into those circumstances? He does it with the fruit of our sins. If we hadn't sinned, we'd never experience something like this or something like this. But again, who has ordered those things? God has. He does it through his word. Just an innocent day. Got up to read my Bible like usual, reading the next passage. And there's this passage that just screams out about that sin. God brought it to pass. Sometimes he does it through our need to confess to others as well as confess to God. I strive to keep a good conscience, Paul said, before God and men. Maybe I did confess my sin to my brother that I sinned against. But then maybe God brings it to my memory or maybe someone else brings it to my memory. So-and-so was there too. Or so-and-so heard about that. I need to go to so-and-so. God brings our sin back into our face. Sometimes he does it through the way others deal with us. They do bring up our sin when they really shouldn't. And our first temptation is to rebuke them for doing that rather than to say, it's on me forever giving them the occasion to have that conversation with me. Don't resent it when God deals with you in that way about past sins. Peter was grieved. Jesus wanted him to be grieved. There was good reason for him to be grieved, as it says in verse 17. Peter was grieved because he said it to him the third time. But we don't know if his grief was all pure. 
Would you be surprised if there was at least a little resentment in Peter's heart toward Jesus when Jesus began to put the pressure on his wound and then he kept it there and he did it the third time? Stop and think at moments like that, brethren. Who sinned anyway? I mean, I, I always like to have the, I always get the picture in my mind from many years of parenting. The picture I have, even though I wasn't, uh, you know, always, I didn't sit and read the newspaper in the living room in the afternoon. But um, I think of the man sitting in the living room in the afternoon after he gets home from work reading the newspaper. And one of the kids comes by and screams at his mother in disobedience. And the dad's thinking, I was just sitting here reading the paper. Now I have to deal with my son. Or maybe he pulled his daughter's, his, his uh, sister's hair or whatever he did, broke his brother's toy, whatever it is. He needs to be dealt with. So the dad deals with him. And now the son is all about giving the dad grief because of how harshly he treated him. And, uh, and, and the dad says, I was just sitting there reading the paper. And so many pastoral issues are like that, aren't they? You weren't doing anything wrong. But the thing has to be dealt with. It escalates to church discipline. You're a bad man. See my point. Stop and think. Who sinned? Not Jesus. When you sin, you have, this is an absolute statement, you have no grounds for complaint about how God is pleased to deal with you for your sin. Remember this for yourself. Remember this when you're called to deal with people who have sinned and you have to be the one who keeps the pressure applied for a while and you know it, lest you grow weary in your well-doing. So there's the second thing. Sometimes we need to be worked over when we have sinned and so do our sheep. Third, we can bring deep conviction and genuine repentance, even for serious sins, with gentleness. That's what Jesus does here, really. Listen to Spurgeon in his lectures to my students. <clears throat> and he's, this is about preaching, of course, but here's what he says. When Nathan addressed David... I suppose that he delivered his parable very quietly and that when the time came to say, Thou art the man, he gave the king a deeply earnest look. But younger ministers imagine that the prophet strode into the middle of the room and setting his right foot forward, pointed his finger like a pistol between the royal eyes and giving a loud stomp of the foot, shouted, Thou art the man. But notice how Spurgeon said he thinks it was. Probably Spurgeon said that after many years in the ministry and as no longer a young minister. And look at Jesus' dealings with Peter about this sin, which was arguably the most serious sin of Peter's life. It started out in the high priest's courtyard with what? A look. 
And then in the upper room, the next meeting between Jesus and Peter, the first word out of Jesus' mouth, peace. Maybe, again, looking Peter in the eye. I don't know. Probably looked them all in the eye. And then on the shore of Tiberias, three questions, three simple questions, not even an explicit reference to his sin, and then the charge, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. What a contrast to an earlier sinful outburst on Peter's part where Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Here's a, here's a worse sin. But notice how Jesus dealt with him. It makes me think of Proverbs 25, 15. By long forbearance, a ruler is persuaded and a gentle tongue breaks the bone. Jesus knew what it took in the circumstances to break Peter's bone, spiritually speaking. Or Galatians 6.1, another good general rule for us. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, and Peter was overtaken in a serious trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. And then 1 Thessalonians 5.14, and I think these are all texts, brethren, that are excellent ones for us to keep in mind as gospel ministers, pastors of congregations, as we deal with sheep, including sinful sheep, including sheep who have committed very serious sins. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, and then this concluding statement, looking back on every category, whether weak, faint-hearted, or unruly, be patient with all. So, know the individual, know the circumstances, and then as a rule, begin gently. You can't fail if you follow that rule. Begin gently. You can begin with soft words. You don't know if it's going to be, have to be elevated. You don't know how far it will have to be elevated. You're ready and willing to do it, but begin gently, knowing that a gentle tongue breaks a bone. That's a general rule. It won't always start out that way. It's Christ-like. We can bring deep conviction and genuine repentance even for serious sins with gentleness. A fourth lesson. True Christians may have difficulty in working through their sin and in believing and receiving forgiveness. I think it's undoubtable that Peter had already confessed this sin. I mean, can you imagine that he went out after seeing Jesus' face immediately after denying him the third time, remembering Jesus' words, went out and wept bitterly, and no part of that prayer session included repentance, confession of his sin, of denying his Lord? No doubt he had confessed that sin to God when he wept bitterly over it. 
And back in chapter 20, verses 19 to 23, we have the instance in which Jesus came into the upper room the first time, and he said, peace. Peter was part of the group. Peter heard Jesus' words. It was a first, probably he was listening more eagerly than any of the others for what would be the first word out of Jesus' mouth. And he heard the first word, peace, peace be to you. And Jesus, on that occasion, likewise spoke words of commissioning. Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Yet still, here on the shore of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee, Peter is laboring with the effects of a guilty conscience. I think one of the places you see that is in verse 12. John 21, 12, Jesus said to them after everybody got to the shore, after they pulled in the load of fish, etc. Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. Now, is there any explanation possible for why Peter at that moment would not open his mouth? knowing he was Peter, than this, guilt. That's how I see it. Or verse 17. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And it says Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. He's grieved, I think, not just because Jesus was so inept at dealing with him. He wasn't inept, and Peter knew that. He was grieved because it hit him what Jesus was doing and reminding him of his three-time denial with his three questions of Peter. So just a couple of practical points here. In your own life, in your own walk with God, don't expect that forgiveness will always come easy. We sin every day. We sin and we sin and we sin. And many of us have learned the lesson that it should be part of our daily praying, just like we pray that God's name would be hallowed and his kingdom would come and his will would be done. And he, he give, that we ask for our daily bread, forgive us our debts because we know we always have them. And when we confess them, we know God always forgives them. And we're thankful for that. And we feel the peace, some peace that passes understanding. And so it's the normal Christian life. So in a sense, we could look at our lives and say, well, thanks be to God that my wife has learned when I ask for forgiveness to forgive me and she doesn't hold it against me. And I know that my Lord treats me that way. Thanks be to God. It should be the normal Christian life. But here's my point. Don't always expect that forgiveness will come easily. Let that thought slow you down when you're in an instance and you think, because I've sinned so many times and I ask forgiveness so many times that God always forgives me and I know he wipes the slate clean, don't ever think you can sin cheaply. And then also, don't think 
And this is as a minister of the gospel and as a shepherd of sheep. I'm putting you on the other side of the desk, if you will. Don't think that somebody cannot possibly be a true Christian if he doesn't immediately bounce back after he has sinned grievously and even dealt with his sin biblically. In other words, he's confessed his sin. He's asked God to forgive him. And then he's telling you he's still laboring under this sense of grief and guilt. He doesn't immediately put on the oil of joy in place of his mourning. He doesn't immediately put on the garment of praise in place of the spirit of heaviness. And you're thinking, is this person a real Christian? I mean, he's not like me when I sin and I ask forgiveness and God floods my soul with joy, or at least that's how it generally happens. It might be your fault, my fault if I sin, and it might be my unbelief when I don't find the peace that passes understanding right away. But part of the reason may simply be what we heard about yesterday morning in the Sunday school class. It may be the immutable wisdom of God in dealing with us. The wisdom of God who teaches different people in different ways at different times. I think of Isaiah 28, verses 23 to 29. It's that instance where it talks about God, it talks about the, um, the cumin, the black cumin, and then the wheat. And Isaiah is saying, if it's the black cumin, you deal with it a certain, probably should just read the text, but I can, I can explain what I'm talking about. You deal with it a certain way. If it's coming, you deal with it this way. If it's wheat, you do it this way. And I think it's talking about the wisdom of God in dealing with people in different ways, at different times, different places in their lives. That's the wisdom of God. And it's part of the wisdom of God that he never wants to make sin a pleasant experience. So... Realize that, brethren. True Christians may have difficulty, whether it's yourself or whether it's a member of your flock, in working through their sin and in believing and receiving forgiveness. They should believe it. We should rebuke their unbelief if they don't believe God's forgiveness of their terrible sin. You see things in their life that make you see, say, I think he's a genuine Christian. I've known him long enough. I know the circumstances of this sin. I believe he has confessed, but he's laboring. Rebuke his unbelief. Start gently. But trust that God will bring him along, that he is not necessarily not a Christian because of his difficulty. And again, we should learn this for ourselves as well as for dealing with Christ's sheep. True Christians may have difficulty in working through their sin and in believing and receiving forgiveness. And then fifth, grace and forgiveness are real. In a way, we could call Peter in this passage, doubting Peter. Thomas didn't believe that Jesus was risen. Peter almost couldn't believe that he was forgiven. And I believe that's a large part of the reason for this episode here and for its being recorded for us. Peter needed to know that forgiveness is real. 
And what I mean by that, brethren, is this. It seems too good to be true, doesn't it? The, the gospel does. And then in our individual lives, it seems too good to be true that I could sin like that, or I could sin that many times, or I could sin in that gross or grievous a way against a person who's dear to me or should be, and against God and my Savior who is dear to me, and that God just throws it into the depths of the sea throws it behind his back, removes it from me as far as the east is from the west. It seems too good to be true. But Peter needed to understand that it is true and he can be restored by the mercy of God. But think of it. How could he have ministered the gospel if it were still an open question in his mind whether this sin had been fully resolved? How could he have ministered the gospel if there were any uncertainty about that fact in his mind? How could he stand up and proclaim the freedom of the riches of the mercy of Christ with that in the back of his mind? He had a special need for Jesus to say, Peter, I know that you love me, and I want you to be a witness for me. Peter needed to know that. The church needed to know that. In the following centuries, there were controversies over whether or not Christians, in some places there were, whether or not Christians who committed certain sins could even be restored to the church upon repentance. That was a real controversy. And the church needed to know this. And I think Christ's treatment of Peter would be a guide to the church, should be a guide to the church. You know, well, you know, should we restore these people? There's a lot of people in the church that think not. I think we're kind of leaning in that direction. I mean, somebody could bring up, you know, there was Peter who denied Jesus three times in his greatest hour of need in front of everybody after being warned in explicit terms, there was Peter. The church needs to know that. And you and I need to know this, brethren. Peter's sin was real and it was serious. But so was the conversation between Jesus and Peter real. And the forgiveness of sin is real too. And you need to believe this when you sin, especially when you sin seriously. Preachers commit sins all the time. Preachers commit serious sins. And one of the things we see in this passage is Jesus Christ would have you and me feel the weight of our sins when we sin. And feel the weight of our guilt. Yet still, he does not intend that you carry around the weight of that sin, no matter how grievous it is, for the rest of your life. He does not want that. Peter had sinned some weeks earlier. And still, this matter needed to be brought to a resolution. And now Jesus did bring it to a resolution with, with Peter. It was over and done with now because of what Jesus did here on this day. That does not mean he would never think about it again. 
That does not mean it would never cause him inward pain again. But it does mean this. It would not give him a constantly guilty conscience. And it shouldn't. And it would not be an albatross around his neck that prevented him from joyfully and wholeheartedly serving his Lord in the ministry. That's the point. Think of Paul and his persecuting the church. Paul, and I think I stated this yesterday, Paul concluded that because of the way he persecuted the church of Christ, he actually had people killed because they were followers of Jesus. And so Paul concluded that that made him the chief of sinners. And like I said, Scripture is on his side. The Scripture is right. Paul is the chief of sinners. So no matter what you know about your heart or what you do, I know there's unpardonable sin. I'm not talking about that. But Paul is the chief of sinners. And yet look at Paul's life and ministry. Look at his writings. His sin, his being such a terrible sinner, was not cause for a life of grief and woe and a sense of failure. That's not what it caused in Paul. It was cause for him to glory in the cross. And it was cause for him to labor even more wholeheartedly in the ministry. Not to atone for his sins like a typical Jew might think it. But to show his gratitude for Christ. He who is forgiven much, what? Loves much. And in a real way to carry out what he wrote in Romans 12, 20, I think it is, 21, whatever. To overcome evil with good. Makes me think of a biography I read many years ago. Ever, anybody else ever read the biography, I think it was autobiography of Robert Flockhart? Huh, okay. Well, so, I'm, I'm not going to. So he was a Scottish sailor, I think brought up in a Christian home. He was like a John Newton. And then God converted him out of a, I mean, a life of real wickedness. And in his autobiography, he would constantly be making remarks about his post-conversion experience about how because of the way that I led all these men to sin in the past, I am making, you know, really, he was really making great efforts to try to speak a word for Christ everywhere he went. I mean, even, you know, we tell people not to make your prayers sermons. I mean, he, he, he would write some of his prayers that were really sermons that he prayed in the presence of others. It was, it was, it's a beautiful thing in that sense. So, what is point five? Grace and forgiveness are real. And then sixth. Sixth is this. God uses broken and restored vessels to do his work. I only have two points left. I'm taking off my jacket. It's not what my nephew used to think that pastor's, uh, Uncle Pastor is just getting started. It's just, it's warm in here. <laughs> Six, God uses broken and restored vessels to do his work. So one brother said, uh, wait, but Paul came up here and talked about the bottom of the barrel. I said, we're all the bottom of the barrel. God uses broken and restored vessels to do his work. Peter was broken. Christ brought him very low. He humbled him in the dust on this day. Yet Christ also restored him and made him useful 
for the coming days. Even though that might have been beyond belief for Peter in the moment. So notice a couple of things. One, God often humbles his people just to make them useful. Why does God do this to me? I'm a pastor. It's often the answer to the question, why, isn't it, brethren? He often humbles his people just to make them useful. Many people think that God humbles them and works them over for their sins in order to deny them a place of usefulness. I've had this happen during the ministry. People sit in front of me and say, you know, and, and, and they really, I mean, they really sin in big time ways. I think of a couple of men back in Minneapolis who had been in jail because of their sins. And they got out and it's like they were just miserable creatures, you know. It, it was it was discouraging to be around them. I looked at it. God had done a wonderful work in their lives. I mean, this guy is still with his wife. She, she still have him. And he's sticking with her. And he's faithfully coming to church. And this guy, you know, he was really converted out of a terrible, terrible situation. I thought this is great. And yet they're, they're just, woe is me, woe is me. I can never be useful in Christ's kingdom. I've, I've heard Christians in situations like that who have sinned and God has humbled them in so many words. Just come out and say it that way. How can I ever be useful in God's kingdom? Sure, God can use you. Me, they're saying. You know, you're a pastor. God can use you. I can never be a pastor. And you know what? They might have been right. They maybe never could be a pastor. But that does not mean that they can't be useful in God's kingdom. As if for God to use someone, he has to be a vessel made of pure gold. You know, never sinned. No, there's no utterly unblemished vessels that God uses other than Christ himself. No, God doesn't humble you, even as a pastor. Sometimes you commit, I, have, I don't know, maybe you guys have had this experience. I have picked up the phone, called men I've known a long time, and said, do you think I should be in the ministry after thus and such has gone on in my life or my ministry or my, in my, among my children, you know? God doesn't humble you to keep you in the doghouse or to keep you out of a place of ministry or usefulness. I'm not saying there are no disqualifying sins. I believe there are. I believe in, the, in, the, in taking the ministerial qualifications at face value. I believe there are sins that if a man commits, he should, know, he should get out of the ministry and never think about coming back. But I'm not talking about those sins here. Why does God bring you even into some sins in your life? To make you fit for his service in whatever capacity that may be. I'm not saying that's an argument to be careless in your life. Absolutely not. But you understand what I'm saying. You can turn to 2 Timothy 2 if you'd like. I quoted it, I mentioned it earlier. I want to read it now. 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26. I'm jumping ahead of myself. I jumped ahead in my notes, but it's stay there because it's under this next subheading. So the first subheading under that point of God using broken and restored vessels to do his work is God often humbles his people just to make them useful. Second, he humbles them to teach them how to minister to others. And that's the point right here. So 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, 
in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Seems to me I inevitably find time to quote this passage almost every year at the pastor's conference because it's been an important passage in my life as a gospel preacher. Don't quarrel. Be gentle to all. Be patient. Even when you have to correct people, do it in humility. Remember, the setting is he's talking about how to deal with people who are in opposition to you. Implication, they're in opposition to God. They're, they need to escape the snare of the devil because they've been taken captive by him to do his will, whether in a, in a sold-out way or just whether for the moment. Those people treat this way. So I think we could look at Jesus' dealings with Peter along these lines, as if he's saying to Peter on this day, Peter, I hope that you have spent all of your abruptness and brashness and hastiness and impulsiveness on me. Because I don't want you treating my sheep that way. I'm helping you to learn not to treat my sheep this way by seeing how I am treating you who denied me three times. John Owen said this, I will not judge a person to be spiritually dead whom I have judged formerly to have had spiritual life. Even though I see him at present in a swoon as to all evidences of spiritual life. And the reason why I will not judge him so is this. Because if you judge a person dead, you neglect him. You leave him. But if you judge him in a swoon, though never so dangerous, you use all means for the retrieving of his life. I think we need that perspective, brethren. Yes, yeah, sometimes we do have to put people out of the church, but I like to say it this way. Don't let your excommunication resemble a Roman Catholic excommunication in which there's an assumption that the person is a child of the devil and there's no hope for recovery. He's not being consigned to hell. He's being disciplined by the church for good reasons, whether he's a true believer or not. Take Owen's words to heart. And if anybody should have that lesson that Owen articulates there mastered, shouldn't it be Peter? Even if nobody else does? So God often humbles his people just to make them useful. He humbles them to teach them how to minister to others. Third, under this point, I'll do it briefly. He humbles them to show them and the world that the power is of God. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being of ourselves. If you're like me, you have a constant fountain in your heart called remaining sin that keeps telling you, it is of you, it is of you. But Paul says, no, our sufficiency is from God, who also made us 
sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And God humbles you to remind you of that truth. It's not you who makes you sufficient. It's Christ. It's God. It's the spirit's work. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. I think it was Pastor Martin who would say something like this. God often gives us reminders of our clay nature. And then seventh and finally, love to Christ energizes and stimulates our love to his people. Do you have a problem when it comes to loving and serving God's people? If you do, from a biblical perspective, here's the problem. You are lacking in your love to Christ himself. It's not like I like to frequently say, you know, I love this job. It's just the people that are the problem. No, if, if the people are the problem, it's not just that I'm lacking love to them. It's that I'm lacking love to Christ, ultimately. Notice the connection in Jesus' words to Peter three times. Do you love me? Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Tend my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. It's an unbroken connection that we should get and not forget ever. Does your native self-centeredness and selfishness keep you from loving and serving Christ's sheep as you ought? Like we heard last night. What is your problem then but that you love yourself not just more than you love them, more than you love Christ? Does the potential pain and disappointment that you expose yourself to when you love Christ's sheep make you shrink from loving them? I've done this before. Every time I do, it is so painful. I don't think I can do it again. And then sometimes we don't do it again when we should. Especially if it's, and I've done it before, with him or with her or with them. The pain, the disappointment, the potential makes you shrink from doing what you should, makes you shrink from loving them. What is that but loving your own ease and comfort more than you love Christ? If he's saying that's what you need to do. Paul said, "For we are, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you, Christ's people. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, that those who'd live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Do you sometimes even despise some of Christ's sheep? Do you sometimes just think of them Maybe not only, but first and foremost as a nuisance. Probably names or faces come to every one of our minds when I ask that question if you're a pastor. Is that how you see them? You have a lot of work to do, brethren, at least regarding those people. 
You need to see them, and I'm saying work to do this, to see them as those for whom Christ died. That's who they are. You brought them in the church? You keep them in the church? Guess who they are? Those for whom Christ died. What's his disposition toward them? Lay down my life for them. Pray that God would help you to see them in that light and treat them in that light. You need to see them as those for whom Christ died. You need to see them as those who are members of his body. I remember one time I, was, I had just moved here and I'd been here. Well, I think I'd been here a year. That's what it was. And then this was a guy, so I, I came to study in the academy in 1985. In the next year's class, I think it was 1986, there was a guy who came from somewhere, he came from, he came from the south, and he was from a quite small church. And I, I was helping him move into his new place in Caldwell, New Jersey. And he was saying to me, uh, you know, was, as we were moving stuff in, I was asking him stuff about his life and where he's from and all that. And every time he told me about the people back home, the church that he was from, he didn't say the church. He didn't say the brethren. He said, well, the body of Christ, he called them. The body of Christ. And I thought, that, that's the way to look at God's people, isn't it? The body of Christ. Why are you persecuting me? Whatever you do to one of the least of these, you do to me. So for that person who's a nuisance or those people, brethren, ask God to help you. See them as those for whom Christ died, those who are members of his body. Your perspective should be, 1 Corinthians 12, 27, now you, Paul was writing to the church in Corinth, you should think of your people that way. They are the body of Christ and members individually of Christ. And the previous verse, 1 Corinthians 12, 26, and if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. It's not all the members and then those brethren in the nuisance category. Or may I say it, brethren, don't let there be a basket of deplorables in your mind, in your church. Romans 14, 15. Do not destroy with your food. Matters of Christian liberty. Destroy whom? The one for whom Christ died. If I as a pastor begin to find that I love God's people less and less, the question is not, well, what did they do to make me think of them? that? That's not the question. It's an indication to me that my real problem is that I am lacking love for Christ. That's how we should see it. Do you need more love for Christ's sheep? Here's where to start. Lord, I love you. You know that I love you. Increase my love for you so that I might have the kind of love I need to have for your sheep. As we sing, more love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. Hear thou the prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea. More love, O Christ, to thee. 
more love to thee. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, who loved us and gave himself for us. Thank you for him, who is the great shepherd, the chief shepherd. Thank you he is a shepherd of his sheep in the way that he was, even as he dealt with them, the Lord of the universe, treating Peter so graciously as he did. Help us to be gracious toward your sheep. Help us to treat them the way you treat your sheep. Help us to treat them the way you treat us. Make us more like yourself, Lord Jesus Christ. Give us more love to you. Father, we are conscious that the only way you can do that, that can be done in our hearts with all our remaining sin is by the work of your Holy Spirit. Work through the word, by your spirit, through the things we've heard today and that we will hear in the coming days of this week to make us the kind of shepherds we should be for the glory of Jesus Christ. And we ask it in his name. Amen.